Kia ora welcome to week three of our series called Cash, where we're looking at the hands of money. My name is not just Simon, but actually my full name is Simon Peter. My mum and dad named me specifically after Simon Peter in the Bible, and ever since, my mum has felt it was an apt name, uh, probably because I tend to act and then think. Uh, sometimes I speak and then think afterwards and realize I really shouldn't have said that. And it makes me wonder whether that's why one of the enduring phrases I hear from my childhood is, Simon, it's not what you say, it's the way you say it. What my mum was saying to me was, Simon, I-, I hear the words you're saying, but your attitude is telling me that you don't really mean that. Actually, you mean something else. You might be doing the right thing, but your attitude is actually expressing to me that you're doing the wrong thing. We're in the final week of our series in cash. We look at what we are giving away. And the inevitable question is, well, how much? You know, time and time again, I hear people say, should I be tithing? Should I really give 10% of all that I have to the church? But I want us to remember as we grapple with this idea of what we are giving, that we never lose sight of the greater issue, which is comes back to the heart, that it's not what we say, but the way we say it. And so in this context of giving, it's not what we give, but the way we give it. And if you take nothing else away from today, this is what I want you to remember. And so we're going to dive in right now. We're going to look at three passages on giving. But before we do, I just want to deal with the elephant in the room that is tithing. Tithing literally means a tenth. The first example we see in the Bible is when you get to Genesis 18 and Abraham meets Melchizedek, uh, probably a pre-incarnation appearing of Jesus. And no laws, no rules, no obligations. Abraham chooses to give a tenth to Melchizedek. When you come to the law, the law of, for Israel, you get um, this principle of a tenth, the principle of the tithe um, enshrined in the law. But what's interesting is there, are, there isn't one tithe. There's actually three. We're not going to read them, but you can go look at these scriptures for yourself if you want. So Numbers 18 tells us about the tithe that was given to the Levites. So the Levites ministered in the temple. They were the only tribe to do that. They didn't own land. They didn't farm crops. And so the other 11 tribes basically... Um, Um, All that they produced in crops and and animals and things like that, they gave a tenth of it to the Levites so that their, their work could be focused on ministering in the temple. But then you get another tithe, which comes up in Deuteronomy 14. And the interesting thing about this tithe and why we know it's different is because the, the, the tenth of crops and animals in this context aren't given, but they're actually consumed. The Israel, Israelites were to save it up. And then every year where they had to go to Jerusalem to, to worship, to have festivals that commemorated what God has done, this, this tenth that they had saved up would then contribute to that journey and contribute to the food. And they were to include other other people in the celebrations. And then further along in Deuteronomy 14, you get the idea that every three years, not just every year, every three years, there was another tenth that was given. And that was uh, stored up at the, at the city gates and given to the poor and those in need. And so uh, tithing isn't just setting aside a tenth in the law. It's actually setting aside probably about 23%. Uh, who wants to tithe now? Uh, anybody fancy that? But I think the other point we have to remember is we're not Israel. 
When Jesus died, he didn't just die for the sins of humanity. He also died as a representative of Israel. He died to, he lived and fulfilled the law, and then he died to pay the penalty on Israel's behalf for their failure to keep the law, because they actually weren't very good at this. And, and, And in that, the law is set aside. It is no longer binding on us. Galatians tells us it was like a a guardian, a boundary around behavior, and it was temporary. That boundary has been removed, and we now live in a completely new era. You actually can't tithe. You can give a tenth, but you can't tithe in the way that it speaks of. And when you come to the New Testament, the only time we get tithing mentioned is when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, as in people who were still living under that old covenant, under that old system. And so we are now set free from that. And therefore, when we give, we give um, in in accordance with a set of principles, but under absolutely no legal obligation. So I want to look at three passages today, and I think it gives us three principles for what it looks like um, in terms of how we give. And the first is, is um, the first principle I want you to remember is that we are to give of our first and our best. We give first and best. Let me take you to the very first example of giving in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, and it's talking about the brothers of Adam and Eve, uh, sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Verse 2 of chapter 4 says, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor, favor, fable, favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Remember what I talked about at the start. It's not what you give, it's the way you give it. And in these offerings, they are different, but there's actually nothing, um, there's nothing conceptually different about them. One's bring, one produces crops, and so that's what he brings. One has animals, and so that's what he brings. We're not saying that one there is better than the other, but there is something very different about the way they gave. We get the impression that Abel sort of, when he feels like it, from time to time, he bought some of the crops. But when it comes to Abel, offering. He brings uh, the firstborn of the flock and he gives the fat portions, like the very best part. Abel gave his first and his best. Jenny, my wife, some of you will know her. She makes incredible roast dinners. I want you to imagine that she's put before me uh, roast pork and we've got like veggies and we've got roast potatoes and we've got gravy and we've got pork and we've got crispy, juicy, fatty, crackling on top. And if you look at that plate and you think, Simon, how could you show generosity? I think it would be to take just a little bit, maybe maybe more, I don't know, of the crackling and say, Jenny, I want to give you this. Just out of what you've given me, I want to say thank you. And to do that, I'm going to give the best. Now, even as I say that, a little piece of me is dying inside. I, I just can't fathom how I could possibly give. And that's because it's the best part. It's the tastiest, it's the part you leave till last, right? Because it's the thing you're looking forward to the most. But it's that level of sacrifice that communicates just how grateful I am. And the fact that Abel gave this first and his best is the very thing that made the gift worship. The very first expression of worship in the Bible wasn't a song and it wasn't a psalm. It was a gift. And because it was sacrificial, because he gave his first and his best, 
it became worship. So I want to ask us the question, not are you giving 10%, I want to ask you the question, are you giving your first and your best to God? Could the way you give be described as worship? Does God get first and best or does he get last and leftovers? You know, I can honestly say that when some, there's something that comes out, some cash that comes our way, some money comes our way, Jenny and I sit down and we say, what are we going to do with this? And sure, there's needs and things like that in our home that need to be taken care of at times. Um, there's things we've gone without, maybe unnecessarily. But generally what we say is, what are we going to give? What of this are we going to give to the church? What of this are we going to give to ministries like, like Christians Against Poverty? Are there needs that we know about that we want to give to? Are there... Um, uh, do we want to increase the amount that we set aside so that we can have people over and, and demonstrate hospitality in our home? We artificially limit what we can buy and what we can own and what we can have for the sake of giving away because it's in that sacrifice, it's in that giving of our first and our best that we're taking what God has given us and turning it into worship. This has nothing to do with percentages and it has nothing to do with amounts. But it's saying, God, of all that you have given me, I want to worship you. And so I'm going to give you my first and my best. Here's the second thing, principle I see in Scripture around giving that's outside the law. Not just first and best, but invest in what lasts. And so uh, Matthew 16, Jeremy looked at this in week one. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there your heart will also be. Jesus is saying, of all that you've been given, there's two places you can put it. You can invest in temporary things or you can invest in eternal things. I don't know about you, but I love a, a good new pair of trainers. I just love unboxing new trainers. I'm a runner. I love it. And, and so when I get a new pair of trainers, like they're bright, they're colorful. There's nothing like going for a run in a brand new pair of trainers. And yet it's not long before, you know, that moment where you scuff them or something like that. Oh, they're never going to be the same again. They're just they're dirty. And then, then you don't really care. And they just get messed up and they get broken. And eventually they wear out. And it's actually a reminder to me not to put my hope in things like that. Because it doesn't matter whether it's trainers or a new car or a home or a boat or a batch, <laughs> anything we have, everything in this world is subject to decay. One day, however good it is, it will break and it will be gone. You see, because of sin, the things of this world are fading away. But Jesus is bringing a new heavens and a new earth that is not subject to decay, that is not fading away. And so while we need food, while we need shelter, while we need trainers and clothes and things like that, and also, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying like, oh, we need to like just do the basics. God has given us everything in this world for our enjoyment. Not our love, but for our enjoyment. But over and above those things, Jesus is saying, don't store up your treasures here in those things that are fading. Because if you store them up, your hope will go into those things. And therefore, the very orientation of your life, 
Your whole hope and life will be wrapped up in those things. Jesus says, rather train your heart in eternal things by putting your money, your treasure into eternal things. And so the question comes, how do I store up treasure in heaven? Like, what does that actually practically mean? I think firstly, it has to do with giving in general, just giving away. See, when we give, what we're saying is, I'm going to artificially limit what I have. I'm going to be content with what I have. And over above that, I am going to give. It's a way of telling my heart, don't hope in here and now. Don't hope in these things that are fading, but put your hope in the greater world to come. But I think there's an even greater way we can store up our treasure in heaven. And we have to take a step back and think, okay, if so many things in this world are fading, is everything fading away? What is it that endures beyond the here and now? And the answer is people. The Bible says that to God, all people alive, uh, are alive, and he has promised eternal life to those who believe in Jesus. And so we, when we give to people, and even better, when we give to things, to, to ways in which people are going to hear the message of Jesus, the only message that changes their, their eternity, then we begin to invest in things that go on beyond the here and now. I believe that's a way of us investing our treasure in heaven. And if we're not prepared to give um, our finances in that way, I have to begin to ask myself the question whether I'm really investing in what's, uh, what lasts. And you can say, okay, but do I have to give to the church? Like, is that what I have to do with at least some of my finances? Let me take to you a little verse in Ephesians 3, my favorite book, Ephesians 3. And right in the middle of the book, it says this. His, that is God's, intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, like the many-layered wisdom of God in the gospel, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you see? The church is engaged in the eternal purposes of God. We are making known... To the, to the heavens, to the earth, uh, to under the earth, everything in between. We are making known the, eternal, the eternity-shaping message of Jesus. And so when you give to things like uh, Christians Against Poverty, when you give to, to global missions, when you give to your local church, you are beginning to invest, not in temporary things, but in eternal things, because you're investing in the proclamation of the gospel that shapes where people spend eternity. And so if you're in church leadership like me, this verse creates a huge challenge for you. Because it's not just about what we give. It's not just about whether I'm giving to the church. Actually, as a church leader, it's then incumbent on me to say, are we using every single cent towards eternal purposes? Is, is everything that is sacrificially given being used to accomplish the eternal purposes of God that are expressed in the mission that he has given to the church? And so it means that as a church, we need to look at using our finances in these ways that, that are according to Scripture, like valid ways of us using it. So you look, um, first of all, I think there's something about giving to the poor in general. Galatians 2.10, Paul says, you know, I, I was really concerned that we remember the poor, or they said they were concerned that we remember the poor. And he says, the very thing I was eager to do. So giving to the poor in general. 
Secondly, the poor in the church. If you were here a few weeks ago, I preached on Acts 4, 32. Such a challenging passage where, where um, people sold homes and bought the money to the apostles' feet and it was distributed to those in the church who had need. I find this a real challenge because then there was no welfare state. Now there is. What does it look like? What does it look like for us to use church finances to care for those in the community so there's no poor among us? I don't know that we're great at that and I think we need to grow in it. It's a conversation we need to have. Also, people in ministry, you saw it with the Levites in the Old Testament. And here, what, um, what Paul is writing to Timothy about is those in the church that direct the affairs of the church. And he says, especially those whose role is preaching and teaching. So a valid use of church finances is towards those who are involved in ministry. And finally, giving to mission. There are a few examples of this, but I want to take one of my favorites, Luke chapter 8. What you see is a group of women who are following around Jesus, and they, out of their personal finances, they support the, um, the life, the, the, the well-being, the livelihood of Jesus and his disciples. Like, has any group of people ever invested so much into the eternal purposes of God as women who followed Jesus around and supported his ministry financially. I think that's incredible. And I don't want this to come across as like a command. I don't want this to come across as legalism or the law. I just want us to ask ourselves some questions. That if we refuse to give anything to God's work that is being accomplished in and through the church, can I really say I'm investing in what lasts. Floyd took us beautifully last week through this idea that everything we have is from God and we're to use it for God's purposes. You know, we love to own things. We're obsessed. Can I just be honest with you? We are so obsessed with owning homes as if if we own a home like the world is right for us. That is as fleeting and as fading as my running trainers. This world is fleeting. It is passing away. You cannot take your finances with you. You cannot take any property. I was going to say chattel then, like it's a bit of a legal word. Chattel is a wonderful word. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you, so stop storing it up. Your life is fleeting. It's a vapor. It is going to be gone before you know it. So how are you going to use what God has put into your hands? Not just for here and now, but for something that will resound in eternity. Where when you meet Jesus and he says, what did you do with what I gave you? You can say, my heart's desire was to give it back to you and to use it for the things that were important to you. Because I know everything revolves around you. This isn't about legalism. Stop talking about tithing. And start thinking about how we use everything we've been given for the purposes of God. I'm going on. Should we go on to point three? Point three is striving for excellence. And so when you come to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's Paul's most extensive teaching on giving. It's, um, it, the context is the church in Jerusalem, there's been um, some sort of natural disaster and uh, there's been persecution and so here's the church in need. And Paul sort of rallies the churches and he says, guys, I want you to give gifts and we're going to pull it, we're going to come around and collect it, we're going to pull them and we're going to take this awesome gift to support the church in Jerusalem. I really, um, I really love that. And so it seems like the Corinthians have said to um, said to Paul, I'm gonna, uh, we're going to give a, a really good gift. And Paul says, I'm coming. I'm writing you a letter. I'm coming. Be ready when I come to collect uh, so that I can collect it. 
And it's in this, in this sort of articulation that Paul gives on giving in the church that we get this principle of generosity. Verse 7 of chapter 8 says, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Paul says, it's so great that you're excelling in faith. It's so great that you're excelling in speech and in knowledge. Like James says, who can control the tongue? These guys are excelling in speech. And yet Paul says, there is something missing if you are not also seeking to strive in generosity. And yet what I find about this is that the context is really interesting because Paul also lets them know that the Macedonians have given a gift that was really generous. But look at the context of the Macedonians. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Like that is not an equation for, for a gift, is it? Overflowing joy plus extreme poverty Add in a cheeky, severe trial, and you end up with rich generosity. Like, what's going on there? Like, why is it that some of the poorest people in the world are actually the most generous? Jenny did a missions trip in Brazil. She's lived in Brazil for a while. You know, she talked about families who would, who would have saved up money to buy a bottle of Coke to put it on the table when, when, when she and her friends went round to dinner. And she said, you had to drink it because it was a gift, but to know the sacrifice that was there. When I was in the Philippines, I got to go to a little church plant outside Manila, this tiny church plant where the family, um, the pastor and his family lived in, in a room behind, like in the back of the ch church. And the, whole, the, the wider family came around and they just couldn't wait for us to taste Filipino mangoes. They're like, you've got to acknowledge, you've got to taste these, you've got to acknowledge that these are the best mangoes in the world. And, you know, and I know at the street we have a, a, a large Filipino community. Yes, honestly, I agree. No twisted arm. I, I think they're the best mangoes I've ever tasted, honestly. But to know that you know, these people, their, their level of wealth was so far below what I am used to. And yet they just couldn't wait. The level of hospitality was incredible. Why is it that we often get shamed by people in such poverty in the way that they are generous? But Paul then couples that with this other idea that you see, that, um, that um, his encouragement was also that they gave in accordance with their means. And so you see the, 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 the giving out of extreme poverty, that poverty is not a barrier to, to a posture of generosity, but at the same time, we're to give in accordance with our means. And this is why I think we have to break the idea that are we giving 10%? I realize that for some people you think 10% is a good rule of thumb. It's a good testimony. And, and I appreciate for some people that works, but I think we need to break out of this. And here's why, because it's important that we're not just um, not letting poverty get in the way of us being generous. But also, I think it's important that we acknowledge what Paul says, give in accordance with your means. And some of us, our means to give are very, very different. So if you're a beneficiary in this country, you're on something like $343 a week. If I say to you, you should give 10%, that's $34. You have barely got more than $300 left for power, for shelter, for clothes, for food, for, for enjoying anything. Like, that's an outrageous gift, I think. You'd have to forego some, some basic needs in order to give in that way. Yeah, if you're on a couple of hundred thousand dollars, you could give 10% quite easily without foregoing any basic needs. And so we have to get away from this idea of, well, as long as I'm giving 10% or I have to, I have to cause my kids to go without so I can give 10%. Let's just get rid of that. 
And say, what does it look like for us to seek, in accordance with our means, to strive to be generous? It's not how much we give, it's the way we give it. And if anybody here is then hoping for a bit of a let off, it's not me that's telling us to be generous. Ultimately, it's Jesus who doesn't just tell us, he shows us. Here's where Paul gets to, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, this is talking about Jesus, through his poverty, we might become rich. Paul takes the the sacrifice of Jesus, the incarnation, him coming from heaven, him living the life we should have lived, dying the death that we deserved and rising together. He grounds that sacrifice in language of financial generosity. And I think this is where the generosity of Jesus becomes really challenging for us. You see, I think we get sacrifice. We celebrate, uh, we commemorate wars, we give medals for people who died in battle. Like if I was walking down the street and somebody tried to attack my friend with a knife and I jumped in the way and got stabbed, you would applaud me. You'd say, wow, what a sacrifice. Somebody willing to lay down their life for their friend. Like, that's incredible. That's amazing. And yet, if I went down to Courtney Place and I found an addict, I found a drunkard, I found somebody homeless with all of those issues, and I said, here's all of my money, here's every item of clothing, here's all that I own, here's all my investments, here's my pension that I've been paying into for like my whole working life. Have it all. Go enjoy those things that you never did anything to deserve or earn. You go do those things and I'm going to sit in your place. You would say that is so irresponsible. That's so wasteful. He, that, that person might waste it. What, they, they don't want to know what to do with it. What are you doing? And I think the fact that when we ground the gospel in language of generosity, that it suddenly becomes offensive to us, shows just how much our hearts are tied to money and wealth. See, the truth is that Jesus really did give up the riches of heaven and take on our place in a way that me sitting in the place of somebody who's homeless could never truly express And every single day, you and I, if we believe in Jesus, waste that and we underestimate it and we walk all over it because we never truly grasp just what he has done for us. But this is the gospel. This is the gospel. It is the most extravagant, the cross is the most extravagant expression of generosity the world has ever known. And in his death, and his resurrection on our behalf, he accomplished the eternal purposes of God for the whole of humanity. And it shows your value that God was willing to give his one and only son for the sake of you and the whole of humanity. Do you get it? God was the first to choose to give his first and his best. And he gave it for you. And the reason God calls us to be generous is not because God cares about laws. It's not because God cares about rules. It's because if we are going to be people who follow Jesus, then we have to reflect him. And by giving what God has given to us for the sake of other people, to accomplish God's eternal purposes is a greater reflection 
is such a great reflection of the generosity of our God in showing the world what Jesus is like. It is not how how much you give. It is the way you give it. Can I encourage us? Let us give in a way that shows the world what Jesus is like. Should we pray? Our Father, we want to thank you so much for the rich generosity of Jesus. And I pray, Lord God, that you would free our hearts from the love of money once and for all and release us to worship you, not just in speech, not just in love, not just in faith, but Lord, also with the things that you have given us. Let us give freely as you have given to us, we pray in your name. Amen.